You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Acts 19 is where we are going to be. We'll pick up in just a moment in verse 11. The first, let me start with a uh, story. A few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, um, I was sitting on my front porch with my neighbor and a Muslim family that we've been working with. And it was a beautiful day. We'd had the two Easter services here. Um, the sun was out. Our kids were actually out in the front yard having a water gun fight. It was all great. And then I got a text from my wife that said, I'm having trouble breathing and I need to go to the ER. And so if you know my wife, you know, like she's not a hypochondriac. She never complains about not feeling well or anything like that. And so I get the text. Uh, I go in. And, and by the way, just to give you a little backstory, uh, a few days earlier, she had uh, had to go to, she went to the dentist because she had an infection caused by a wisdom tooth, which was causing her jaw and her neck to swell up. And so the dentist told her, hey, eventually we're going to have to remove your wisdom tooth. But for now, let's give you some antibiotics. Let's give you some painkillers. And let's try to just get the infection down. And so she got her medication. Um, however, despite getting the meds, within a few days after that, the swelling was getting worse. Uh, her throat was actually beginning to feel like it was closing up. And so we go to the ER, and after we file our paperwork, we get in. Uh, the doctor actually started an IV. Uh, he ran a couple antibiotics and a steroid in her, and he told her, he said, look, um, this is going to help you. But ultimately, he said, if, if you want your symptoms to go away, symptoms that, by the way, she'd been experiencing on and off for three years, um, he said, if you want these to go away, or if you want complete healing, you're just going to have to have your wisdom tooth pulled out. It's going to have to be completely removed. Um, and so sure enough, the next day, 11 o'clock, my wife goes to the dentist. Um, she got the wisdom tooth removed. And ever since then, um, there have been no symptoms, right? They have all gone away. And the reason I share that is just to say this, the reality is what we're going to discover today is there is something inside of us that if left unchecked and unabated, can create more decay and more destruction than an infected wisdom tooth. Um, something below the surface that if we ignore it or we refuse to address it, will in fact rob us of the life and the joy and the peace that we long to experience. And this thing that I'm referring to is what the Bible calls an idol. And when you think of an idol, uh, don't think Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, um, or don't think of a picture that I believe we can put on the screen. This is a picture uh, from a, a children's book, like the one my parents used to read to me as a kid to warn me of idolatry. Um, but don't think of something like this, where you see a bunch of people bowing down to some sort of golden statue, or I, I like how even this lady, lady has a naked baby. I'm not sure why there's no clothes on her baby, but she's like, look at the golden calf, worship it. Um, Right? Don't think of images like that because I think the temptation is, is to look at an image like this and say, oh yeah, idol worship. That's what primitive people like that did back in the day. But, but that's something, right? Like, like, like we're different now, right? We're modern people. We're sophisticated. I mean, sure, we send the occasional poop emoji to people through our iPhones, but we are so much more intelligent. We are so much more advanced. And therefore, right, we would clearly never do anything as silly as this, right? Well, the reality is, as good as that sounds, and as we're going to see today, the only difference between us and people like that on the screen 
is that their worship of idols was overt and conscious, whereas our worship of idols is often covert and subconscious. And yet, I would say it's every bit as real, and believe it or not, it is actually something that is deeply rooted in our American history. Alex Tocqueville, who wrote what many consider to be a defining work on our nation, after spending some time here in America, said the following, A strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. A strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. Now, he wrote this, by the way, in 1830, uh, commenting on the American belief that our prosperity will somehow quench our yearning for happiness. He went on to say the following, Such a project is doomed to fail because the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. If you want a good definition of an idol, that's a pretty good one right there. It is putting your hope in one of the incomplete joys of this world, looking for it to do for you what only God can do for you, which is satisfy the human heart. It's a good definition of an idol. Or as we said last week, an idol is anytime we take a good thing, something like romance or family or kids or work or our career, it's anytime we take a good thing and we try to turn it into an ultimate thing. And therefore, in the words of Tim Keller, an idol is anything that your energies, passions, and physical resources flow most effortlessly towards. Most effortlessly towards. By the way, um, if you're listening to this and you are not a Christian, I want you to understand that the idea of idolatry is not just a Christian concept. In fact, the great German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who is anything but a Christian, wrote in his book, The Twilight of Idols, the following, there are more idols in this world than there are realities. Question is, if that is true, where are these idols? Where are they? Um, well, according to Ezekiel chapter 14, God says of the elders of Israel, they have set up idols in their hearts. Or as it says in the message translation, they have installed their idols in their hearts. So yes, like we saw in that picture, there are idols that are out in the open for everyone to see, like the golden statue. But there are also idols, the kind of idols we will talk about today, that are in our hearts that are much harder to detect and therefore I would say just as real but even more dangerous. And so here's the question. We're about to dive into Acts 19. Do you have an idol in your heart? If so, what is your idol? And most importantly, the question we'll try to answer before we end today is how do you uproot this idol? How do you extract it from your life so that you can actually experience the life and the joy and the peace and the satisfaction and the fulfillment? that you were created to experience. And in order to answer that question, we'll be in Acts 19, verse 11. And just to set the context for you, Paul has now entered into Ephesus, which was one of the richest cities in the richest region in the Roman Empire. They had the largest library in the world. They had the largest uh, amphitheater in the world. They also had the largest temple in the world, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. And the temple they had was dedicated to the idol, to the goddess Artemis, who was uh, literally a goddess that the entire city was built around. And so what I mean by that is, is, is the whole city was defined by her presence. The industry of the city, the economy, the family, the religious landscape, it was all shaped by Artemis because they believed that this idol was the uh, protector of the city. She was the one that brought about prosperity and joy in their lives. And so in Acts 19, Paul, fully aware of the Ephesians worshiping this idol, he decides to enter into Ephesus with the gospel. And by the way, 
This is really important to understand. Paul was not the first person to go into Ephesus with the gospel. Um, This is important to bring up because what we are seeing over and over, and I hope that you're picking up on this in the book of Acts, is when the gospel goes into a new area, oftentimes it does not go into a new area through an apostle or a super Christian, but through an everyday, ordinary person. And the reason that is important is if you're here today and you feel very normal, you feel, you feel very ordinary, what you need to know is that by God's design, you are the tip of the spear for evangelism in our city, into the world around you. And so if you're here and you're not someone with a seminary degree, or you don't, you're not a pastor, or you don't consider yourself to be some varsity Christian or some missionary who goes overseas, if you're here and you're a stay-at-home mom, or a factory worker, or a businessman, or a businesswoman, or a teacher, you need to know God wants to use people like you to take the gospel forward into unreached places so that people far from God can be brought near. So we see happen all through the book of Acts. So We finally come to Acts 19, verse 11. Paul is entering into Ephesus, and here's what we read. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons who had touched touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. So apparently, Paul is walking in so much power, he has like this sanctified hanky ministry. To where if, if you can't like have Paul personally come to you, Paul's like, hey, no, no problem. Blows his nose, here's a handkerchief, just go rub it on and they'll be fine. I mean, that's what Paul is walking in here. And so that's why Luke, when he's talking about these miracles, he doesn't just call them miracles. He says they are extraordinary miracles. So clearly Paul is now walking in a power that many had never seen apart from Christ, right? Apart from Christ physically doing the miracles himself. And so verse 13, we see this. There were some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists that undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Evidently, um, what's going on here is there was like a local Ghostbusters squad um, who were called the Seven Sons of Sceva. And, and apparently they had heard about how Paul was casting out demons. And so they were like, that's awesome. I want some of that. And so they actually go up to a group of demons and they say, right here we see it, we command you in the name of Jesus Right, whom uh, apparently is some guy that this guy named Paul is preaching about. We command you in that guy's name to come out of him. And then look what happens in verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I mean, you talk about the ultimate diss. These guys are trying to cast out these demons and the demons just look at them and like, all right, I know who Jesus is and I know who Paul is, but I have no idea who you are. Now, one of the questions that I had this week is, how do they know who Paul is? I, I mean, do the demons communicate with one another? Do they have staff meetings? Do they have like a newsletter probably called the Hellish Times? I mean, like, how, how do they get the word to one another? I, I don't really know. But what's amazing to me is apparently the demons have heard of this man, Paul. And you know why? Because they know how dangerous this dude is to the threat of evil in the world. They know who he is. But the sons of Sceva, they said, we have no idea who you guys are. So verse 16, look at this. This is crazy. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
Now, I'm not really sure why Luke felt like he had to say in here, and wounded. Because if you're in a fight where you have the clothes beat off of you, I'm just going to assume you've been wounded. And and I'm going to assume, like, if you're in a fight where you walk away with no pants on, you're not just wounded physically. Like, you're wounded psychologically. You're, You're wounded emotionally. So, I mean, it goes on and on. And so this is what happens. And then verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both the Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So people begin to praise Jesus. In verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That is equivalent to $7 million today, which in this time period would have been a year's worth of wages for up to 500,000 people. So then the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I just want to stop right here and I want to draw out the fact that whenever a spiritual awakening happens in a city, like we see here in Ephesus, we see two things happen. We see one, that people begin to be blown away. They begin to have their eyes open how amazing Jesus really is. And they actually begin to confess and repent of hidden sin in their life. And the reason I bring that up is because, listen, I would assume most of you aren't hiding books of dark magic in your closet. But there are some of you who are currently hiding sins that are just as destructive. And I don't know what they are. The person next to you doesn't know what they are. Your spouse may not know what those sins are. But what you need to know is that nothing stops a move of God faster than secret sin. Therefore, I want to encourage you today with all the love in my heart to to stop believing the lie that you need to hide that to step into the light, to make a full, clean confession before God and others so that we can, as a church, continue to see God move mightily in us and through us. This is what we see happening in Ephesus. And as a result, if you flip over to Acts chapter 19, verse 25, Acts 19, verse 25, the gospel movement, it begins to get the attention of a man named Demetrius, who apparently owned an idol factory that made silver statues to the goddess Artemis. And whenever Demetrius begins to see that everyone in the city is now becoming a Christian, he gets nervous because he realizes, wait a minute, I try to make money off of this woman, and now if people aren't worshiping her, what am I going to do for a living? So he gets together all of the businessmen from the city, and in verse 25, he says, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. So apparently he's not the only one making money off of this idol. Other people are as well, and I don't know if they're making like WWAD bracelets or like Artemis is my co-pilot bumper stickers or what they are doing, but they're making a lot of money off of this idol. And so he says, you know, this is how we make money. And then in verse 26, and you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but also or almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with human hands are not gods. And that seems like a no duh type statement to me. Like if you can craft a God in your head and make it, probably not the one true God. This is like Paul's slogan, like campaign slogan here. And he's saying it, he says that Paul's saying that everywhere he goes. And as a result, verse 27, there is danger now, not only that this trade of ours may come in disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship, verse 28. And when they heard this, They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 
So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. So apparently Demetrius is so fired up, he whips everybody else up into this emotional frenzy. And then in verse 34, if you look down at it, they flash the mob into an amphitheater which seated 25,000 people. 25,000 people. And for two hours, it says that these 25,000 people called out in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, just think about this site. The Convocation Center in Jonesboro, I think, holds like 12,000 people. Imagine a crowd twice that for two hours calling out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Right? I'm sure like one side is like, Arda. This side like, miss. Arda. I mean, like they are fired up. And I love how in verse 32, in verse 32, they are so just amped. It says, some cried out one thing, some another thing, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. So I just have this scene, or this image in my mind from Anchorman, where Breck is sitting there with a grip, and he's like, I don't know what we're yelling about, right? It's like, that's what comes to my mind. These people are so fired up. They don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. They're just all in this emotional frenzy. It's a really crazy scene. And in the midst of this, Paul is like, I want to go in there. So we read now, I want to go in there. I want to preach the gospel to these people. However, his friends are like, that's a bad idea. If you go in there, you're going to die. So wisely, they keep him from going in. Eventually, we won't read the rest of the chapter, but the crowd disperses and Paul and his friends go on to live another day. It's another day in the life and times of Paul, right, and his friends. And there's a lot we could take away from this chapter, but what I want to do in the time we have left is I just want to look at three questions that Acts 19 invites us to ask of ourselves. Three questions that we can ask for the purpose of identifying our own idols, for the purpose of then uprooting them from our hearts. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to take notes now. And here's what I want to do. Before I ask you these questions... I want to share with you um, one of four root idols that I believe that every single one of us in here are tempted to bow down to. I want to share four idols, and I want to share with you how all of us, I believe, and scholars believe this as well, and Tim Keller has written on this at length, that though there are thousands of idols out there, there are really only one of four that you lean towards and are tempted to worship that actually will cause all sorts of negative symptoms to come out in your life. And those four idols you see on the screen is the idol of comfort, the idol of approval, the idol of control, and the idol of performance. I'm going to say a quick word on each of these, and then we will ask the three questions from Acts 19 to help us identify which one may be our root or our source idol. So first, the idol of comfort. Those who worship the idol of comfort are people who believe that true happiness and true satisfaction is found in a life free of restraints, pain, and difficulty. Oftentimes, people who bow down to the worship or the idol of comfort are people who complain about work because they believe if it's hard, it must be bad. And as a result, oftentimes people who worship the comfort or who worship a comfort idol will run to comfort-related sins whether that be overeating or pornography or too much screen time, all while neglecting their own responsibilities and commitments that they have made. That's those who worship the idol of comfort. Those who are tempted to bow down to the idol of approval are the people who would say um, that I am only happy whenever I can receive the approval or the applause of others. These are people who say I am not okay 
unless you were okay with me. And these are people who often are walking around saying, what can I do today to make somebody else happy with me? And as a result, people with an approval idol tend to overcommit, overpromise, and overstate in order to gain affirmation and praise from others. Oftentimes, by the way, uh, you can know if you have an approval idol because the price you're willing to pay is authenticity and independence. Uh, You'll become inauthentic and you'll become enmeshed. You'll become codependent in a very unhealthy way. A third word idol um, that we can talk about is the idol of control. And the person who bows down to a control idol is a person who says, I can only be happy whenever I get mastery in this area of my life. And these are people who felt they have to dot every I and cross every T. Um, these are people who felt they need to be in order. Their life needs to be in order and very predictable. And if not, they become very anxious. Finally, the, the fourth of the root idols is the idol of performance. And the people who worship the idol of performance are people who say, I can only be happy if I'm successful. These people tend to be highly competitive and discontent because they believe the lie that their worth is determined by their work and they've never quite done enough. Therefore, they're always trying to achieve more, always trying to climb another mountain, always trying to knock out another task. And so comfort, approval, control, performance. Now, what I want you to see before we move on is notice, by the way, that none of these things within themselves are bad things. Uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comfort is not a bad thing. Um, Approval, getting affirmation from others, being loved. Is that a bad thing? Being accepted? Absolutely not. Um, Control is not a bad thing. Paul says in Timothy, for God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Uh, performance is not a bad thing, as long as it's just about knocking out some tasks and getting some things done so the world can be a better place. So none of these things are bad within themselves. But again, remember, what is the definition of an idol? It is whenever you take something good and you try to make it ultimate. Whenever you begin to look to that thing, comfort, approval, control, or performance to give you what only God can give you. Because listen, when that happens, it will eventually drive you into the ground. It will absolutely devour your life. According to Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.11, listen to this. When you were made, God created you with eternity in your heart. Do you realize that? You have eternity placed inside of you, which means when you were born, you were placed with a desire for God. And whenever you try to dethrone God from your heart and you try to put something else in there to give you what only God can, it will devastate you. And so with that in mind, let's ask the three questions from Acts 19. Three questions to help you this morning identify what is the root idol in your life that is causing all of the other issues that you see on the outside to crop up over and over and over again. Three questions we can ask to identify our idol so that we can then uproot it. And again, I would encourage you to really process that. I feel like right now there are some of you that maybe you zoned out, zoned back in. I know I'm in front of a crowd, but I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. So ask these questions for yourself personally, not for the person next to you, but for you. First question from Acts 19. What is it in your life that promises you security and joy apart from God? What is it in your life that promises you security and joy apart from God? In Acts 19, we see the reason the Ephesians bowed down to the idol of Artemis is because they looked to her as the prosperer and the protector of their city. 
They believed that if they had Artemis, everything was going to be okay. And if they didn't have Artemis, everything was going to fall apart. So here's the question. First question. What is that in your life? Is it comfort? Is it approval? Is it control or is it performance? Is it a life of ease? Is it praise that comes from other people? Is it to have a life that is completely manageable and predictable? Is it to be successful and important? What is it in your life that you think, if I have that, then I can have security and joy? Second question from Acts 19 is this. What is it that engages the deepest emotions of your heart? What is it that engages the deepest emotions of your heart? In Acts 19... When the idol of Artemis is threatened, it causes the people to break out in a riot. They begin to protest. The people get whipped up again in such an emotional frenzy. They start making crazy, irrational decisions without even thinking about why they're doing what they're doing. Again, if you remember in verse 32, 32, they're yelling out, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. But then they're confused, like, I don't even know why we're here. Right? And in verse 40, which we didn't read later, eventually a city clerk comes in and he says, look, we're actually, what we're doing here is illegal. And if we don't bust this thing up, the Romans are going to come in and arrest all of us. So they're making some stupid decisions. They're emotionally worked up. With that in mind, what is it that engages the deepest emotions of your heart? What is that thing in your life? What is it that whenever you don't get it, makes you most angry or most anxious, or most depressed. Or on the flip side, what is it that when you get it, you're most excited, and you're most pumped up? Is it comfort? Is it approval? Is it control? Or is it performance? Finally, another question that we can ask is this, from Acts 19, is what is it that you feel like you have to protect at all cost? What is it that you feel like you have to protect at all cost? In verse 27, Demetrius upon Artemis being threatened, says the following, there is now a danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be deposed from her magnificence. In other words, if we don't protect our idol, she's not going to be able to protect us, which is crazy, isn't it? Because she's supposed to be protecting them She's supposed to be giving them everything that they need, but now they feel like they have to give her everything. They have to protect her. Question is this morning is what is that for you? What is that thing you feel like you have to protect at all costs? Because if you lose it, your life is over. If your idol is comfort, you know what you'll have to protect yourself from? You will protect yourself at all costs from demands and hard work. If you worship the idol of approval, you will have to protect yourself from rejection. Because that is the worst thing that could ever happen. If you worship the idol of control, you will have to, to protect yourself from an unpredictable, spontaneous life. And if you worship the idol of performance, you will have to protect yourself from humiliation and failure. So, again, here are the four idols. We all are tempted to bow down to one of the four. Maybe some of us were tempted to bow down to two, three, or four of them. It's the idol of comfort, the idol of approval, the idol of control, and the idol of performance. Now, upon identifying your idol, which, by the way, takes some work sometimes. Hopefully, if you've taken notes, you will need to process this with your DNA. This is where things like the Enneagram can be helpful. But upon identifying your idol, the next question that we need to ask ourselves is then, how do we uproot it? 
How do we uproot? How do we get this out of our lives? Because for some of you here this morning, right, you're experiencing, again, kind of like Megan with the wisdom tooth. You're experiencing the same symptoms over and over, the same sin you're talking with over and over, same thoughts over and over. So how do you actually begin to uproot this idol so that you can experience complete and total healing? And in short, the way that you do this is by replacing the narrative. You have to replace the narrative. In other words... You have to expose the false narrative that your idol has been feeding you. The narrative that says things like this. Hey, you want to be satisfied? You need instant gratification. Hey, you want to be fulfilled? right? You you want to have some self-worth? Then you've got to accomplish more. Hey, you you want to be someone who who is affirmed and feels loved? You need the praise of man, right? You have to expose these false narratives that you are being fed by the idol. And then listen, you have to, after exposing the false narrative, you have to replace it with a true and better narrative. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says this at the end of his book, which he is writing to a group of people who, like us, are tempted to bow down to false gods. Peter says this, For this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Listen, a lot of this, here's what Peter's saying. If you want to uproot your idol... If you want to kill it before it kills you, the first step, you've got to call off the false narrative. But then you have to replace it with the true narrative. Or in the words of Peter, you have to replace it with the true grace of God. And I'll give you an example of what this looks like even in my life this morning. Um, as most of you know, I struggle with the idol of performance. Uh, meaning that I have a drive in me that sometimes just will not stop because I have a drive that says, hey, if you're going to be happy... Um, then you've got to be better than where you are. You've got to be more successful. You've got to climb another mountain. And then the more successful you are, the more valued you are. Um, I was talking with um, Jeff Schulte a few weeks ago, who many of you know has spoken here and is a mentor to uh, Chuck and Adam and myself. And, and Jeff said to me, he goes, you know, sometimes people will use the image. If he says there's guys that they have a ladder and they're climbing this ladder and they get to the top of it and also they realize like, wait a minute, it was leaning up against the wrong wall the whole time. He goes, man, sometimes when I think about you, Jared, your ladder doesn't lean up against the wrong wall. It just doesn't have an end to the ladder. Like you just feel like you have to constantly keep climbing, keep moving. And I began to think about that uh, this morning because I woke up and there are some Sundays like today where I'm anticipating a lower crowd because we've got people who are traveling and out of town. And there's a few things that kind of some balls were dropped here and here behind the scenes, which none of y'all probably ever even noticed, but it's things that I notice and and therefore, because that on mornings like this, I didn't just wake up to a physical storm. I woke up to a shame storm. And I began to believe the lie that I've got to get up here on stage in a couple hours and I have got to perform in some way because if I can't manage your perceptions and make you have a good experience and feel like this was a great time, then you're going to leave. And if you leave, maybe eventually everyone will leave and I'm going to come here some Sunday and nobody's going to be here and I'm going to go home. My wife's going to have earbuds in listening to Matt Chandler because he's a lot better preacher than I am, Right. And if that happens, then who am I? Then who am I? I'm a failure. I'm a nobody. Now, here's the thing. When that happens, I've got one of two choices. I can either sit there and keep running that tape in my mind and listening to that idol feed me that says, you better perform today. When you get on that stage, you better have your A game. And if not, you're a nobody. I can either keep playing that in my mind or I can take a moment to replace that with the truth and say, wait a minute. No, 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 no. 
I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And my value is not tied to my work, but it's tied to the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you think about me. The reality is God does not need me to perform in order to earn his love. Christ has already accomplished everything I need. And therefore, no matter what happens, even if everybody else walks away, God will never forsake me. He will never leave me, but he will look at me only not with disappointment, but with delight for all eternity. I have a moment to do that. And listen, you have the same, the exact same choice every single day. When that idol is in your ear, when the enemy is in your ear feeding you a bunch of lies about who you are, that it's over, that it's hopeless, that you're a nobody, you have the choice in that moment to arrest that thought and say, no, false narrative, that's a lie, and begin to believe the truth that comes from the scriptures. And if you're here and you're like, well, I've already tried that. And it didn't work. I've done that. And I'm still struggling. Well, that's because you forgot the second half of this verse. Peter says, for this is the true grace of God. Second half, now stand firm. Stand firm. Wait a minute, Judge. You mean like there's a work I've got to do? Like, you mean there's something that I have to do here if I'm going to uproot this idol? Well, the answer is yes. If you want to uproot your idol or idols, you have to, in the words of Peter, stand firm in the true grace of God. say, well, how in the world do I do that? Well, it starts by slowing down long enough to actually examine your heart. Some of you right now think about this. You're not even trying to receive the words that are being spoken this morning to even figure out what's going on below the surface because our minds are going 90 miles per hour. And I don't say that to shame you or to guilt you, but we have to slow our lives down to not feel every single second with screen time or something going on so we can get below the surface and figure out what is going on, what is actually the idol or idols that I may be down to, uh, bound down to in my heart And then, listen, you have to train your soul. You have to train. You have to train your soul to practice and rehearse the true narrative. In other words, you have to preach the true grace of God to yourself, not just once a week when you're here on Sunday morning, but every single time that the idol begins to feed you a false narrative. And you know what that means? Listen, guys. Listen, please hear me. There is no easy button for your spiritual development. I will never get up here and just give you somehow, by God's grace, a secret word that you've never heard before, and you're going to hear it, and it's going to radically just cause every idol to fall away, and from here on out, you'll never have any issues. Which means, if you want to replace a false narrative with a true narrative, if you want to uproot your idol well, one of the most important things that you can do, don't miss this, is to wake up in the morning and do this right here. To read your Bible. To wake up every morning and to not do this, but instead to do this. Do, I think one of the enemy's greatest tactics is to cause you to underestimate how powerful this is. And so he keeps you from it. And you roll over in the morning and you see how many notifications you have. You respond to them and bam, off you go. If you want to uproot your idols, you need to realize 
Jesus himself said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you want to live, you want to experience life to the fullest, you have to live off of the words of God. You have to memorize the scripture, you have to meditate on the scripture, and it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Uh, if you need help in this, I would encourage you to start in the Psalms. If you want to start in the Psalms, read a Psalm or two a day, or there's 28 chapters in Matthew, read one chapter a day in Matthew. There's 15 chapters in Romans, read like a half a chapter from Romans every day. It doesn't have to be anything crazy. But spend time in the scriptures and then listen. Because we all struggle to believe that what God says is true about us is actually true, you cannot do this alone. You have to do this in community. You have to do this in community. You have to walk closely. We've said this over and over and over with two to three people from your missional community who not only know the false narratives that you are tempted to believe, but they are people who, rather than perpetuating that false narrative in your life, they actually speak the truth and love to you. These are people who, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, are bringers of the message of salvation to your lives over and over again. So there is no easy button. Some of you maybe hear this today and say, man, that sounds like a lot of work. You're right. It is a lot of work. It really is. Uprooting your idol really is like going to the dentist. It's invasive. Um, it's costly. But here's the thing. Though pulling up your idol will cost you a lot, refusing to pull it up will cost you way more. Way more. In Jonah 2.8 we read the following, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God that could be theirs. Could be. Could be. I pray that this morning that nobody forfeits the grace of God, that you will let go of the idols of your heart, that you will seek to destroy them before they destroy you. And that you will trust that God's grace is sufficient for you. As the band comes forward this morning, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to enter into a time of communion. We'll sing one last song together. And without too much shuffling around, I know we need to close our Bibles and grab keys and things like that. But without too much shuffling around, I'm going to invite you just to close your eyes for a moment. And just ask the Spirit to search your heart. A message like this could feel heavy, but it also could feel really light because today you can unload whatever it is that you're dealing with and you can give it to Jesus and you can experience complete and total healing. For some of you, maybe this morning, you have never fully surrendered your life to Christ. You have been cherishing an idol of comfort or approval or control or performance, building your identity on that. And I would encourage you today, to release that and to say that I want to dethrone this from my heart. I want Jesus to be the king of my life. If you do that for the first time today, I would invite you to come talk with me, talk with someone you came up with. We'd love to help you with next steps. For the rest of us in here, for those of us who, who though we are tempted to bow down to idols, we continue to, to put our ultimate hope in Jesus. I would encourage you to come and partake of communion. We have two stations in the front, two in the back, a gluten-free option for you in this back corner. And communion is a reminder to all of us that once again, that we have forgiveness for our sins, that Jesus came and lived a perfect sinless life that none of us could ever live. And therefore, because of that today, that we can walk out in freedom through the power of His Spirit. 
I want to pray for us and then we'll partake of communion. Father, thank you so much for another opportunity we have to sit under your word that you have given us that is alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. I pray that right now through your Holy Spirit that you would pierce our hearts with it, that we would hear exactly what we need to hear. Father, I pray for the person who maybe is here right now who has never even considered the fact that maybe they are an idol worshiper. That you would open their eyes and see that there are things, that there are people they have been building their lives on, putting their hope in that will never satisfy the deepest longings of their heart. And I pray that you would fix their eyes on Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.